0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: Blessed is our God at all times,
2: both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. And make us worthy, O Master, to dare with confidence and with inner confidence, to call upon thee, O God, as a Heavenly Father, and to say, Our Father... Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on
0: earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, and as you forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen.
1: Thank you very much, Father Joseph. Okay, please welcome back Dr. William Marshner.
2: Thank you. Our topic tonight is the Pope and the Bishops as presented in the document on the Church from Vatican II. As you probably already know, the Vatican II document on the Church goes by the name Lumen Gentium. And in my opinion, it is probably the finest single document to come out of Vatican II. Nevertheless, there are a great many preposterous claims that are made about it. It is alleged that there's some sort of big divide between the doctrine of the Church at Vatican I and the doctrine at Vatican II. Okay? Prima facie evidence against that is the fact that at Vatican I, a a complete schema, that's Latin for a draft, constitution on the church was drawn up. All that got promulgated in 1870 was one chapter of it, the chapter on the, uh, on the primacy of the Holy Father. But the rest of a complete schema on the church was drawn up, It dealt with the status of the church as the mystical body of Christ and as the the faithful people. All that language was in there. The point that bishops succeed to the apostles in their diocese by the same divine right as the Pope succeeds to Peter in his diocese was already in that draft prepared for Vatican I. So Vatican I was already prepared to condemn the idea that bishops succeed to the apostles only indirectly, as though via the Pope as though Episcopal power was transferred by Christ first to the Pope, and then through the Pope comes to the bishops. That would result in the idea that the bishops are like, um, uh, what would be a good word, lieutenants of the Pope or something like that. Absolute nonsense. Ready to be condemned at Vatican I. Many of those, well, at first... The whole draft schema on the church, De Ecclesia, prepared at Vatican I, was then criticized, the initial draft was criticized by the bishops at the council. Get this. This is Vatican, this is 1870. The first draft started to explain the nature of the church by seizing on the term the body of Christ and holding that as the central truth from which all the rest of the truth about the church could be derived. Guess what? The bishops at Vatican I didn't like that. They insisted that the, well, of course, the, the, the image of the body of Christ has to be used. I mean, it has to, it's part of our doctrine. But they wanted to start out with a different quasi-defining statement. They wanted to start out with the statement that the church is the Chatus fidelium Christi, the body or society of the believers, of the faithful in Christ which is a whole lot like people of God, isn't it? It's a very similar um, preference there at Vatican I for talking about the people of God before we get into the deep description uh, of the mystical body. All right. I have selections with me tonight from that complete schema prepared at Vatican I. As I say, there were criticisms of the first draft by the bishops. It was then completely revised and annotated. It was revised and annotated by a great hero of mine. He was Father Josef Kloetk. Gatton. E-U-T-G-E-N. He was an SJ. Yes, he was. Okay. He died in about 1885. But he was at Vatican I as a paritus and a member of the Central Theological Commission for the Editing of Documents. He wrote the annotations on the first draft, and produced the second draft, right? I have a number of quotations with me tonight, if we have time, if you're curious about them, that I will be happy to read to you. And the similarity in wording between the second draft of 1870, prepared by Father Kloetkin, and the final wording in Vatican II is often remarkable, Okay. Now then, the reason for that similarity is not simply because the theologians in Paredes at Vatican II went back and read the material from Vatican I that hadn't actually been promulgated, they did that too. The reason is that many parts of that second draft of a complete schema on the church were taken and put into encyclicals by Leo XIII. So he got them promulgated that way. Not as acts of the council, but as, well, encyclicals. Right? And uh, I'm going to name two encyclicals in particular. One is called Et Sane. E-T-S-A-N-E, which means and indeed. And the other one is called Satis Cognitum. Satis Cognitum, which means it's well enough known. Okay, Satis Cognitum. Parts of that draft were put into both of those encyclicals. And when you go through the footnotes of Lumen Gentium, please note how often those encyclicals are quoted. That's Kloetkin's draft from Vatican I coming into Vatican II via those intervening encyclicals. Oh, by the way, and a great deal that was in Satis Cognitum was repeated by Pius XII in uh, Mistici Corporis and in Mediator Dei. So the idea that there is some big break some theological revolution, some conceptual earthquake between Vatican I and Vatican II is absolute nonsense. Okay? Now let me lay to rest another myth. The claim is often made that Vatican II chose a different concept of the church from what had been used at Vatican I. Okay. Uh, Yves Congar, for example, an all-too-famous Dominican. Eve Congar, O period, P period, is one of those who maintains that although the Council preserved to some extent the concept body of Christ, it really preferred and further developed a new concept called people of God. Okay. He thinks the originality of Vatican II lies in synthesizing those two concepts. Okay. Then there is another theologian, this time a German, my side of the Rhine, but he's even worse than Congar. This guy was named Köster. I forget right now his first name. That's an umlaut over the O, so it's not Koster, it's Christa. He maintains that uh, Vatican II has fully shifted to the concept people of God. That's the new central concept of the church. This has not been taught before. This is new. This is brilliant. This is new. This is revolutionary. Okay. Unfortunately, there are also theologians who maintain an other opinion or other opinions. For example, there is a guy, was a guy, Named Otto, S-E-M, M-E-L-R-O-T-H, who picks on a word in the very first paragraph or so of the document and says that Vatican II has initiated the great novelty of understanding the church as a sacrament. Sacrament. Now, that word is in the text. What it, in fact, means, I will explain to you in a bit. But it's preposterous to maintain that this word that occurs basically once in the whole document is the, the new central concept of the church. Okay? Oh, and then there are the people, oh, gee... This just drives me crazy. People said, "No, no, no." The real, the, the the real heart of Vatican II is a deep idea common to the talk of the body of Christ and the talk of the people of God. It's the common idea of sharing. Okay. Now, that sounds even better in Latin. It's communio. Yes. The church is a communio. A communion. Well, we talk about the communion of the saints. It's not that strange a word. But um, I would like to know exactly what communio means. If it doesn't mean a social belonging, or a mystical incorporation into our Lord. If it's neither of those, exactly what is it? Now, I brought with me the very interesting first chapter of a very interesting book. It's called The Concept of the Church. It was published in 1981, and it was written by a chap named Herman William Maria Reichhoff. R-I-K-H-O-F, Father Reichhoff. Get this, this book was a dissertation written under Edward Skillibex. Right? Who's hardly a saint of my devotion. When I think of Skillibex, I often think of very funny money ideas indeed. So when I saw that this book had been written under the direction of Skillebeck's, I thought, oh, gosh, this is going to be awful. But in fact, it's wonderful. I couldn't believe it. The Concept of Church, subtitle, A Methodological Inquiry into the Use of Metaphors in Ecclesiology. Now, never mind all the complications that the subtitle may suggest. The first chapter of the book is devoted to looking at the successive drafts that were used at Vatican II. The first draft was handed to the council fathers already when the council assembled. It had been uh, produced uh, already in 1960 and 61, working in the Curia. It was edited by Cardinal Ottaviani and presented to the council, The bishops criticized that draft. The next draft was written by a French or Belgian, I'm not sure which, theologian. Father Gerard Philippe. Philippe with an S on the end. You know how French is. Half the letters are silent, especially at the end of a word. It's ridiculous. Gerard Philippe produced a second draft. Now, it has often been alleged that, oh, oh, that's where you see the radical novelty of Vatican II. Yeah, they, they got that schema prepared by the Curia and all. Yeah, but they, they quickly threw that out. Yeah. And they got this French guy or Belgian guy, whatever, to write this, this new draft. And that was accepted as the basis for further work. Okay. The idea that this was a revolutionary moment, however, is somewhat dimmed by the fact that Father Philippe's draft uses almost all of the text of the first draft, including whole chapters from the first draft, OK? The main issue is, is, is in arrangement, order of covering topics. It's not a big difference of doctrine. Well, then Monsignor Philippe's draft was submitted to the bishops, so kicked around some more, revised again, a second draft, and then there was yet a third draft, and that's the draft that was promulgated as Lumen Gentium. Okay? It had the title Lumen Gentium ever since the second draft. All right? So there was continuity between the drafts. A great deal from the Curial Draft One is still in Lumen Gentium. Surprisingly much. Now this guy Rykoff goes through the whole history of the debate over these drafts, what was in them, what was changed, what was different about them. And then he faces this question, was there a shift at Vatican II? in the central concept of the church. And he comes to the conclusion, let me see if I can find this. Here we go. Page 37 of his book. One cannot maintain that, quote, people of God, unquote, has replaced, quote, mystical body of Christ, unquote, as the central term. That was one. In other words, the central claim is baloney. Anyone who studies the drafts will find that the central concept, if you want to call it that, remains the same. The traditional one. Okay. The only thing that is a little bit new with the final draft is that they, it gives a full survey of all the biblical images under which the church is presented. Okay? Not only people of God, but also the house of God, or the temple, thank you, kingdom, okay, the sheepfold, the flock. It goes through a discussion of all of those terms, each of which illuminating in its own way. But it certainly does not throw out Mystical body in favor of people of God. And yet we have been told this, this was a central innovation of Vatican II because Vatican I was written back in 1870 when there were still kings and princes and tyrants ruling people and the church was against democracy and everything had to be uh, thought of as a monarch with the monarchy with the pope at the head. But now, ha ha, in the 20th century, the church came to terms with the modern world, recognizing the democratic potential of the term people of God. Okay? Since there is no theological shift from body of Christ to people of God, and no theological shift on the topic of papal primacy, as we will see in a minute, these claims that the church endorsed democracy in the church, in Lumen Gentium, is baloney. Did I end that sentence right? Claims, no, it's are. They are baloney. All right? So, do not believe what you read in journalists, Xavier Wren, of course is a pseudonym. Don't believe what you read in these commentaries. They're not based on any serious scholarship. Okay? Now then, what I propose to do <clears throat> is start on my way through the text of Lumen Gentium, beginning in chapter 1, and then um, I'm going to hit chapters 7 and 8, and then we're going to hit chapter 14. We can't discuss the whole thing. Document is huge. We can hit some highlights, and I want to use this opportunity to comment on uh, famous turns of phrase that come up in these early chapters. Right away in chapter 1, De Ecclesiae Mysterio, on the mystery of the church, we find this sentence. Since Christ is the light of the nations, this Holy Synod, called together in the Holy Spirit, strongly desires to enlighten all people with his brightness, which gleams over the face of the church by preaching the gospel to every creature. And since the church is in Christ as a sacrament or sign and instrument of intimate union with God and of all humanity, The council continuing the teaching of previous councils intends to declare with greater clarity to the faithful and to the entire human race the nature of the church and its universal mission. All right. There's the occurrence of that term sacramentum, as it is in the Latin. Veluti sacramentum, cells, sinium et instrumentum. Intime cum Deo unionis. The claim has been made that the choice of this word uh, means that uh, the old list of seven sacraments is somehow now seen to be incomplete. We forgot one. The church. The claim is made that somehow... uh, uh, the, uh, you know, uh, the church fulfills the classical definition of a sacrament and, and therefore that's the right way to understand it because it's a visible thing that communicates grace. Huh? Yeah, Something like that. Okay. Would you believe none of that is true? What the council is doing here is going back to the old-fashioned use of the word sacramentum. Let's get one little piece of history under our belts. The word sacrament acquired its modern technical sense in the 11th century. Yeah, in the work of Peter Lombard. Okay? Peter Lombard took the idea of a sign and the idea of a cause and fused them together. And said a sacrament, properly so called, is a, not just a sign of grace, but a cause of what it signifies. Okay? Thus far, Peter Lombard. Prior to his time, the word sacrament was used much more broadly. And here is why. In um, the first, second, third, fourth centuries of our era, the Romans were concerned about keeping their language free of foreign words, they were never as bad as the French, you know, with their academy and their La Rousse. But it, 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 the Latins were pretty sensitive about this. And so they would not use the word, here we go, M-Y-S-T-E-R-I-O-N, Mysterion. They didn't want to use it. It's a Greek word. Okay. They wanted to translate it into Latin. Okay they tried to use and be satisfied with the Latin word arcanum. Arcanum, which means a secret. Okay. You've heard the word arcane, okay. hidden secret. And that is one of the, one of the meanings of mysterion in Greek but it's, it just didn't have the right feel. Okay? So they were dissatisfied with that translation. And instead, they came up with a word that had use in connection with dedicating gifts in temples and making pledges to temples. That word was sacramentum. And that is the word that stuck in Latin, sacramentum. And so, in the early centuries, indeed, until the time of Peter Lombard and the High Middle Ages, sacramentum was simply the translation of the Greek word mysterion, which means mystery. So anything that you can call a mystery, you can call a sacramentum. All right? So, the followers of the church often said that our incarnate Lord is a sacramentum. Sure. Because there's more to him than meets the eye. We have a proper definition of the term mystery in uh, St. John Chrysostom. He says, wherever you have something that looks one way to the unbeliever, but another way to the believer, because the believer sees something the unbeliever doesn't, you have a mysterion. Okay? All right. That'll fit baptism. An unbeliever looks at it and he thinks, bunch of water. We look at it and we see the cleansing of the soul. So baptism is a mysterion, a mystery so is our Lord. Okay? People all over Palestine looked at him and said, here comes that rabble-rousing rabbi again. The authorities will soon make short work of him. They weren't seeing what faith sees in Christ. Yes? His hidden divinity. Well, by that standard, come on, is the church a mystery? Of course it is. The church is observed by unbelievers throughout the world, belonging to various Christian quote unquote denominations, belonging to various other religions, and the world is full of venom against it—a reactionary force of oppression and darkness. And, uh, what did uh, Voltaire say about it? She's an infam, she's an infamy. Crush the infamy. a crosser l'enfant, said Voltaire about the Catholic Church. And of course, we've been called the Antichrist and, well, you know, the full range of abusive terminology. So the world sees the Church. But do they see those people in the world, all that's there to be seen? No, they don't. They don't see her divine status by virtue of institution. They don't see that she has Christ as her head. They don't see that we are knitted to Christ in the church through supernatural gifts, do they? Okay. So they think of the church as just a political or economic force. And so they often think they can wipe us out. Right. In that sense, obviously, the Church is a mystery. And hence can be called a sacramentum in Latin. And if if you want to try to introduce that archaic use of the word into English, yeah, fine, go ahead, call the Church a sacrament, but know what you're saying. You're just saying it's a mystery. The Trinity is a mystery, right? The Incarnation is a mystery? Yeah. Heck, According to the followers of the church, the the symbolical pages of holy scripture are mysteria, like the the um, Song of Songs. Okay, the unbeliever looks at that book and says, "Aha! Red hot love poetry here, horny Hebrews." No, no, no. Okay, the believer reads that book and sees the dialogue of affection between God and his church. Yes? Mm -hmm. We see what they don't. So that's what a mystery is. That's what Mysterion meant. That's what Sacramentum originally meant. And that is all it means here on the first page of Lumen Gentium. It does not mean that the church is literally a cause of grace. Nor is she literally a sign of grace. Okay? But when people call the, 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 the church a, 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 a great she's a sign, because she's a sign, then they try to say sign of what? Sign of God's un, being united with man in some way? Well, okay, that's a sort of unorthodox answer. But Skillebex's answer is, the church is a sign of dialogue. How do you like that? Yes. Sign
1: of dialogue.
2: My goodness. It's not a clear sign of anything. And it is certainly not a cause of grace. How does the church produce grace in anybody's soul? By performing one of the seven sacraments, Right? By baptizing people, by giving them the Eucharist, by chrismating them. Yeah, those are causes of grace, not the church itself, for heaven's sake. So the idea that you can take the technical sense of the word and apply it to the church is ridiculous. And Father Otto Semmelroth should have been fired from the International Fellowship of Theologians. Okay. Just incompetent. All right, I go on to my next issue. I'm now at the beginning of chapter 2. No, no, it's not chapter 2, it's just paragraph 2 in chapter 1. The Eternal Father, by a completely free and mysterious design of his wisdom, created the whole world. He decided to raise human beings to share in the divine life. And when in Adam they fell, he did not abandon them, but provided them always with the means of salvation, having in view Christ the Redeemer, who is the the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. That sentence is, in fact, the first sentence of the curial draft. Taken over completely and put in a very prominent place. All right. The only thing that is um, a little bit different from the curial draft to the final promulgated document... is following reflection on the salvation historical context of the church. Listen to this. All those chosen before time began, the Father foreknew and predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's Romans (laughs) 8.29. All those who believe in Christ, he decided to call together within Holy Church, which right from the beginning of the world had been foreshadowed. Had been foreshadowed, then wonderfully prepared in the history of the people of Israel and in the Old Covenant. Established in these last times and made manifest through the outpouring of the Spirit. It will reach its glorious completion at the end of time. Then, as we read in the Holy Fathers, all the just from the beginning, quote, from Abel the just right to the last of the elect, will be gathered together in the universal church in the Father's presence. Okay. So the church was foreshadowed from the very beginning. This is probably an allusion to the verse in Genesis. Satan will try to bite the woman's heel, the woman will crush his head, yes? Or the seed will crush, the woman will crush his head, depending on how the grammar goes there. Foreshadowed from the beginning, but then... Prepared in the people of Israel. That's the church of the Old Testament. Okay. Uh, The people of God in the Old Testament is called the Ecclesia Dei. Well, Ecclesia to Theou in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. (coughs) It's in the book of Numbers. Yeah. And um, we can think of the church very sensibly, and you find this, this is not new, you can find this in Aquinas, for heaven's sake, and in the Fathers long before that. Let's put it this way, you can think of the church at various widths in the temporal dimension, time. Okay? Let's start with the cross here in the middle, descent of the Holy Spirit and so on, and go on. (coughs) Obviously, the church, uh, 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 born on Pentecost in some sense, and centered on our Lord, will go on to the end of time, to the general resurrection. But you get different widths if you consider antecedents. The church, in the narrow sense, begins with Christ, the apostles, the crucifixion, Pentecost. But there is a wider sense that goes back to Moses. The people of God is organized at Mount Sinai. That's what's called the Ecclesia Tuthéu, the Kahal Adonoi. You have to gargle when you try to speak Hebrew. Kahal Adonai, the, the congregation of God. Okay? And there's a still wider perspective. You can go back to the call of Abraham. And there's a still wider perspective. That goes all the way back to righteous Abel. This broadest perspective was called Ecclesia Ab Abel. Okay? Perfectly traditional, all over the place in the Fathers, and it's in Aquinas, and so it's here. Nothing new about that. Okay? In just the same way. You can think of the church on a variety of levels in a second dimension. Let's call it altitude. Here on this line, we're dealing with the church in this world, what you might call the church militant. Under the New Testament, the Church of Christ, the Catholic Church, under the Old Testament at least under conditions of history. But, if we go up a level, we can also think of the church as including those who have passed on into the next life. Yes. Like the the suffering church in purgatory, but preferably think about the church triumphant. All right. So let's put that up here as a higher level. Seen at a higher level, the church includes not only members on earth, but also members in heaven. When you get to heaven, you don't leave the church after all. You become part of the church, triumphant, yes? But at this level... Every member of the church is still a human being. Some are saints in heaven. Some are suffering purgation. Some are still alive in this world. But every member of the church is a human being. At this level, you can think of the church in contrast to our Lord himself. He's the head, and this whole thing is the body. But especially this, the New Testament church, is his body. Head versus body. That's a contrast. Go up one more level, and the church will include divine members. Oh, why not? Let's have the angels in there, too. All right? Let's go all the way up to the highest possible level where you have the totus Christus. Head and members. See what I'm saying? Aquinas has a uh, has a uh, rather dense uh, chapter in the uh, third part of the Summa, where he works all of this out. All these different senses of the church that were known to him, he inherited them all from the church fathers. And all that we're getting at Vatican II is a hint of that tradition. We can see the church as prefigured or prepared all the way back in time. And we can look at the church either as Christ's bride, in contrast with him, or his body in contrast with the head, or we can look at the church as the whole Christ head and members. Right? All right. I am going to skip now over... A great many details. I'm now in uh, paragraph 4 of section 1. The Holy Spirit leads the church into all truth, and he makes it one fellowship in ministry, instructing and directing it through a diversity of gifts, both hierarchical and charismatic. Charismatic. In other words, office in the church, episcopate, apostolate, these also are, gift, these also are um, gifts of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So there's no contrast to be drawn between the church as a hierarchical society governed by the priests and the bishops, on the one hand, and the church as a sort of a charismatic thing, filled with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, on the other hand. Vatican II says repeatedly they're the same. No difference. No distinction. I have a clear statement of that further on, but here it is already in paragraph 4. All right, in chapter 7, I'm sorry, paragraph 7 in chapter 1, we get the term mystical body. Here it is, still in full swing. The Son of God, in the human nature he had united to himself, overcame death by his own death and resurrection, and in this way redeemed humanity, made it a new creation. And by the communication of his spirit, he constituted his sisters and brothers, gathered from all nations, as his own, what? Mystical body. There it is. Then there are four more paragraphs about the term mystical body. It hasn't been thrown out at all. And uh, remember that that was the, the key idea in the very first draft at Vatican I. Nothing has been lost. It's all just brought forward. And among the various gifts... I'm now in uh, paragraph 7. There is one Spirit who distributes his various gifts for the good of the church according to his own riches and needs of the ministries. Among these gifts, the grace of the apostles holds first place. So the gifts are not all equal. So thanks to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the church is an ordered society, hierarchical society.
1: Hang on.
2: All right, I'm now in paragraph 8. I love this. This society, however, equipped with hierarchical structures and the mystical body of Christ... A visible assembly and a spiritual community. An earthly church and a church enriched with heavenly gifts must not be considered as two things, but as forming one complex reality comprising a human and divine element. Therefore, says Vatican II. By no mean analogy is the church likened to the mystery of the incarnate word, just as the assumed human nature serves the divine word. In a similar way, the social structure of the church serves the spirit of Christ. Okay? Now then, uh, there are all kinds of... um, pretentious theologians pretentious all over the european continent for the most part who think that this way of looking at the church on the analogy of the incarnation you know the visible part the human part plus the divine part that that that's a bad thing that's that's the christus prolongatus view of the church, as though the church were the incarnation prolonged and continued in the world. Well, first of all, it's only an analogy. Nobody said otherwise. And second of all, what's the matter with it? It's perfectly good theology. Okay? Perfectly good. Okay. Now then, I go to the next part of the same paragraph. This is the unique church of Christ, which in the creed we profess to be one holy Catholic and apostolic. After his resurrection, our Savior gave the church to Peter to feed. And to him and the other apostles, he committed the church to be governed and spread. And he set it up for all time as the pillar and foundation of the truth. This church, set up as an organized society in this world, subsists in the Catholic Church governed by the successor of Peter and the bishops in communion with him. There you go. Now then, if you go back and read the encyclical of Pius XII, Mystici Corporis, you will find in that famous document an identity statement. It says the mystical body is the hierarchically organized Roman Catholic Church, the visible society on earth. It's an is there, is of identity. All right. Vatican II says that the church defined in mystical body terms subsists in the Roman Catholic Church. And I know people who think That is a big deal. Okay, big deal. As though the church were backing away from the identity claim. It's complete nonsense. I found the identity claim later on in the document. The one is the other. It's in there in black and white. But more importantly, there's a merit to using this term, subsist it in subsists in I don't want to give any of you painful memories but I was down here a year or two ago and I was talking about the mystery of the incarnation and I talked a lot about subsistence yeah that was a rough night or two Um, and I'm not going to go into that delicious metaphysics again Let's, let's simplify the discussion by putting it this way What is it to subsist? Okay. Number one, it's to be a whole thing, never a part. Okay. And it's to be a concrete thing, never abstract. A subsisting thing is a concrete whole. Okay. As opposed to a paper organization. As opposed to some vague concept. A subsisting thing is a concrete thing. Okay. Heat is a quality that we find in bodies. Matter of uh, molecular motion, huh? Heat does not subsist anywhere. If it did, you'd have some being that was pure heat and nothing but heat. To the best of my knowledge, that doesn't exist. I used to think fire was subsisting heat. It's not. I asked a buddy of mine, well, if fire isn't subsisting heat, what exactly is it? And he gave me a funny look and he said, it's soot. Ah! It's glowing particles coming off the wood. It's glowing soot. When it gets high enough, it turns to smoke and it's not glowing anymore. It's the same stuff. Anyway, I'll give you another illustration. You get on the bus. Okay? You can sit next to somebody who subsists. Okay? But you cannot sit next to human nature. It doesn't subsist. It can't occupy a chair. It's not concrete. Suppose your wife came to you, or your husband, okay girls, suppose your spouse came to you in late November and said, all I want for Christmas is some green. Hmm. I get it. You don't want to want me to go shopping. You just want to give me money. You want greenbacks, dollars. And she said, "No, no, not money. I just want green." Oh, well, I I, I get it. Uh, you want the house repainted, inside, outside. It's gonna place gonna look like a permanent St. Patrick's Day. Is that what you want? She says, no, I don't mean walls are painted. I just, I just want green. Could you give her or him such a present? No. Because the color green is not a subsisting thing. I could give her a green wall, that subsists. I could give her a green back, that subsists. Green itself does not. Does everybody get the idea? So what we're saying is that the mystical body of Christ, the intimate union of men in society with the Son of God, is real, concrete, in exactly one place. And you're in it. Congratulations to all you Catholics. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Marshner. As usual, we will take a short break. Dr. Marshner mentioned that um, it's an improper understanding of the power ...of the episcopacy to understand it in the sense of the bishops being lieutenants of the Pope. But Vatican I states that the Pope has the fullness of power. How are we to understand the right relationship between the power of the episcopate and the power of the papacy? Sure. Well, the bishop has full
2: authority to run his diocese. But the bishop is accountable... Just as a suffragan bishop is accountable to his metropolitan, okay, so also every bishop in the world is accountable to the Holy Father for his stewardship. It doesn't mean that he's simply doing the handiwork of the Pope, but it does mean that there is an authority, an authoritative judge, okay, even in this life. And that is a very good thing, because I didn't know about you, but I can think of so many bishops over the course of my brief life that I would have liked to see removed. Uh-huh. Taken out of their dioceses, Given chaplaincy in a nice little leper colony somewhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, but the, um, the, the bishop in his diocese is the successor of the apostles there by divine law. Just as much as the Pope is the successor of Peter by divine law. All right? I got that right here in paragraph, uh, yeah, section 20. Section 20 of chapter 1. Just as the office that was given individually by the Lord to Peter is permanent and meant to be handed on to his successors, so also the office of the apostles, nourishing the church, is a permanent one that is to be carried out without interruption by the sacred order of bishops. Therefore, the synod teaches that by divine institution. The bishops have succeeded to the place of the apostles as shepherds of the church. And the one who hears them hears Christ, And whoever rejects them, rejects Christ. Okay? There it is. So these men are in authority in their diocese by divine right. The only um, aspect of church practice that makes them seem like lieutenants of the Pope is the now common practice of having um, new bishops nominated or appointed uh, by a curial congregation, the congregation for bishops. Nominations come from the diocese, go to the curial congregation, uh, the curia uh, picks somebody Maybe the Pope knows about it. Maybe he doesn't exactly. Anyway, uh, the choice is, is made there. And then all that has to happen is that neighboring bishops actually come and consecrate the man. Then he's made a bishop. Remember, appointment from Rome doesn't make you a bishop. Okay. It means that you're the one who should be made a bishop. But it doesn't make you a bishop. For that, you need the laying on of hands of brother bishops. All right? All right. Now, um, this custom of having candidates um, for the episcopate uh, looked over by a central Roman authority is relatively modern. It did not exist in the Middle Ages. It certainly did not exist in the ancient world. In the ancient world, particular um, uh, churches... Chose whom they wanted for a bishop, or their metropolitan was involved in the choice. And then, uh, once the. Sometimes it was acclamation by the people. Okay, this is the man. Remember why St. Augustine was afraid to travel much? He knew the people wanted to make him a bishop, he'd published a book. He didn't want to be a bishop. A heck of a job. He thought Hippo was safe. Little did he know that shortly before he got there, the reigning bishop had died. Okay? And he was surrounded by people screaming, You're the one! Yeah. Okay. So other bishops are brought in and he's made a bishop. And the only involvement of Rome was... Rome would be told about it after the event. The Patriarchate of Antioch would be filled by local procedures and local bishops consecrating, and then Rome would be told. Okay? So the importance of the bond of unity with the Holy See was not denied. It's just that the bureaucratic arrangement we have now was not in place. I wish, sincerely, that I could think of this bureaucratic arrangement as entirely bad. Okay, I wish. But I'm an American. I have seen our hierarchy in action. I used to be a reporter and go to the national bishops' meetings the yeah, NCCB or whatever it was called in those days. And, yeah. And, um, you know, if if Rome didn't have any say in who those guys picked, they would be worse than they are now. I remember a brief period not brief enough when um, our apostolic delegate in this country was Archbishop Jean Jadot. We thought that the episcopate might be getting a bit better. We had a couple of conservative nominations and consecrations and then Jadot came along and the American hierarchy went Straight downhill. That was bad. But that was years ago. Yeah, all right, well how much better is the situation now? You know, if we're going to restore the rights of particular churches to nominate for their bishop and arrange for the consecration without going through Rome first, if we're going to restore that, then first we have to restore to our sees bishops educated in theology. Not brick and mortar experts who don't know anything about theology but canon law. You know what I mean? So, I mean, it's a difficult... You know, the the old ways sound nice, more decentralized, more organic and so on. Yeah, but getting back to them isn't easy as a practical matter. Okay. Oh, one more thing. About the distinction between the bishop acting on his own in his own diocese, where he acts by divine law, and bishops acting together in groups, collegially, okay, in, let's say, national conferences, or local councils, or whatever. Get this sentence from Vatican I. This is emphasized, again, in the nota pravia that was uh, approved, uh, by, uh, added by uh, Paul VI The college or body of bishops does not have authority unless this is understood in terms of union with the Roman pontiff, Peter's successor as its head. All right. And then the collegial power can be exercised by the bishops throughout the world in union with the Pope provided that the head of the college calls them to collegial action the head of the college is the Pope calls them to collegial action or at least approves of or willingly accepts the united action of the dispersed bishops in such a way that the result is a truly collegial act Okay. this heads off the possibility of bishops in a given region getting together and simply declaring themselves the local collegium we're all very collegial around here and then starting to put out statements and pretend that these are exercises of the magisterium okay. you don't want that We have seen that. Some of you are not old enough to remember this, but I am getting long in the tooth. I remember the days when the U.S. Catholic Conference was riding high and putting out these statements. Oh, they were going to address The crises of the modern world with vim, vigor, and uh, evangelical authority. Prophetic. And so we were told all about the attitude we had to have towards the strike at the Hagar Pants Factory. Okay. Well, I don't know how much they chuckled over that in Rome. But when that same local clique of bishops put out what they said was a pastoral document on atomic weapons, okay, and conceded that, well, you could sort of have them, but you couldn't use them. Okay, Rome intervened and said, look, national Episcopal conferences are not magisterial bodies. These statements they put out are not collegial acts the way the acts of an approved local council would be. So let's not, this is a perfect example of what's meant here. Collegial action or allegedly collegial action by bishops has to be at least approved or tolerated by Rome. And the, the only problem I can see is that sometimes Rome has just tolerated too much. Okay. Uh, in the time of Paul VI, I think I told you this last week, he condemned... Communion in the hand. All right? The American bishops turned around and said, we're going to institute it anyway. Because there's such a demand for it. Manufactured demand. Well, anyway, there was such a demand for it. I'm not particularly against it, but I'm just talking about the process here. They said, well, we're going to do it anyway. And Paul VI, he just put up with it. So anyway, that's enough of it. I think that's that's yes. enough.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Mershner.
0: <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540 635